Welcome to Cat Talk Radio with your host, Molly DeVos. Molly is a cat expert and certified feline training and behavior specialist. With her expertise and her guests, you'll learn how to interpret and control behavior issues with your cat, how to entertain and converse with them, and keep up on the latest feline news around the world. Now, here is Molly DeVos. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Cat Talk Radio. I'm your host, Molly DeVos. And today, I want to answer the question, are cats truly domesticated? But before we jump into that that debated topic, say hi to my co-host and handsome husband, Dewey. Hello, everyone. And hello, my beautiful wife. And to all those cat fans out there in the big cat world, I say hello to you, too. So, wow, this is a very interesting topic. You know, I don't think I've really thought about the difference in domestication. So why are we talking about this topic today? Why do you feel compelled to answer this question? Because I think it's important that we not confuse cats' behavior with dogs' behavior. You know, um, my buddy Jackson Galaxy says the world sees cats through rose-colored dog glasses. And, and that's really true. We tend to lump cats in with dogs. And they've been domesticated very differently. So I think that if people better understand what's going on inside a cat's brain, they can assess their behaviors better and know how to create strategies for altering the behavior, the behavior without compromising the cat's needs. Wow, surely cats are domesticated. I mean, it just seems natural that way. Almost all of them refer to as DSH, which stands for domestic hair, short hair. Yeah, well, DSH really means mutt. It's in. It's actually in reference to the breed of the cat. And in this case, DSH means an all-around, randomly bred cat. You know, like, like we call a dog a mutt. Well, DSH, domestic short hair, means the same thing. You know, um, some, some purebred cats, you know, you have Siamese and Bengal and Persian and all of those. But when you have a mix... Of breeds, we call them a DSH. You know, like I said, dogs, we call them mutts. So it's the mutt name for the cat. But I don't think the term itself contributes anything to a cat's domestication. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's let's back up and let's ask this again. Do you think cats are domesticated? Well, no, not really. And and I'm not alone in that opinion. And I think we need to start with the definition of domestication. So what most people understand it is to be is the process of taming an animal and keeping it as a pet or on a farm. But when you talk about domestication as part of an evolutionary process, it means a lot more than that. Domestication should not be confused with the term taming. Taming is the conditioned behavioral modification of an animal to reduce its natural avoidance of humans or to tolerate the presence of humans. And domestication is the permanent genetic modification of a bred lineage that leads to an inherited predisposition to respond calmly to human presence. 
Wow, that's a lot of information to keep in your brain. I don't know. How well, you it's, do yeah, that. I know, and, and it, well, it's <laughs> it's because I think about this a lot because cats are really wild, you know, and and why are they so wild, and and why are their behaviors that they need so wild, and and that leads us back to domestication, which is why I wanted to talk about this today. And there's just a real difference between, you know, people that have a cat that snuggles up against them and stuff say, well, you know, my cat's domesticated. And I'm like, no, your cat is tame. So I think there's a real a real difference. We're talking about science here. We're not talking about have you tamed Fluffy to come to you and purr and expose his belly and trust you. We're talking about on a genetic level, is that cat genetically changed to not be afraid of you as a human being. Wow, this stuff is really, really deep, probably way over my head. But so are you saying that we've tamed but not domesticated cats? Well, I okay, let's go back to the beginning because I think it would help to understand the development of cats' relationships with humans. You know, a lot of people um, don't understand how, how we began our relationship with cats. So cats are shy and elusive and very good. And I'm talking about the wild cats. So these little guys are descendants of, of African wild cats. And, and those cats are very good at avoiding humans. And even so much so that, you know, our house cats, wild cat ancestors, you know, they have so successfully avoided humans. There are very few photographs of them. And it was only a couple years ago that a photographer actually got a photo of a litter of kittens. And it was like a big deal and, you know, National Geographic and whatnot because they're so elusive. But way, way back a long time ago, like, you know, 9,000 or so years ago, us humans figured out agriculture. And we began to harvest and store grain which, of course, attracted rodents. And guess what that attracted, right? Uh So the cats would live around these storage areas because obviously it was a handout. It was an easy access to meals. And I'm not referring to the grain here. I'm talking about the rodents Uh that were living off the grain. Uh But that relationship, so the cats became very important to people because, you know, the grain storage, they only harvested once a year. So, you know, they would store all this annual harvest and they, you know, they really protected, they put a lot of resources into protecting their granaries, mostly from other people. You know, they built walls, they built guard towers, they, you know, armed their men with swords, they got in fight with people over the grains. But, you know, something as small as a mouse or a rat could just decimate the entire supply of annual grain storage. So, People started noticing the cats and really appreciate them. But the other thing that happened is, of course, they noticed the cats and realized how beautiful they were and how mysterious they were. And so they thought it'd be kind of cool, like sitting around the campfire and watching the cats stalk the mice and they toss them over a piece of meat. And the cat was like, whoa, that's that's great. That's easier to catch than a mouse, right? (laughs) So then eventually it's theorized that 
someone kitten napped a litter of of kittens uh, of these these cats that were hanging out eating the rodents around the granaries raised the litter of kittens and then you know hand raised them as best they could obviously for us it'd be like raising you know really feral cats they weren't probably didn't sleep with the people back then and things like that but their whole point was to get them to get them used to eating from them so that they would stick around and become these great grain protectors. And that launched a symbiotic relationship with humans. Wow, this is fantastic. How is it symbiotic? Well, because the humans were so grateful to the cats. I mean, then later, even the Egyptians founded a holy city of the cat, you know, and they called it um, Babastis. And um, and this is back in the time when they were mummifying cats. You know, they had such a high regard of cats that when a cat died, they would they would wrap it in mummy cloth and bury it. You know, like like they did their people, and they weren't doing that with their their cattle or their dogs, by the way. So they they appreciated these cats. So in exchange for rodent patrol, you know, people fed them and took care of them. So. I really don't think you're answering the question. I'm maybe again it's over my head, but uh, <laughs> I'm being today. I, yeah, somewhat. I mean, because you know, this is a deep, deep conversation, and probably the scientific piece is what's kind of confusing. But so, are cats tamed or domesticated? I'm trying to get to that. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's dive into some of the medical component here. Um, so they're they're definitely not as domesticated as dogs, right? Dogs, you know, began the relationship, their domestication process over 20,000 years ago. And cats is really only like I said about 9 9 10,000 years ago. But the, the, there's a, um, a school of medicine, the Washington University School of Medicine. They have a group of science who, scientists who were working on the cat genome sequencing, sequencing project. And they wanted to compare the genomes of domestic cats and wild cats to see how they differed. So they concluded, and they are kind of considered the experts in this, but scientifically, they concluded that our house cats are only what they call semi-domesticated. So in the scientists found changes in, in the domestic cat's genes that involved reward-seeking, and they thought that was important in the domestication process. And this confirms that the symbiotic relationship of humans rewarding cats to get them to stick around the campfires or for rodent patrol, that all led to domestication. So the scientists also found that in the main differences between purebred house cats and their wild counterparts was in physical features. So now I'm talking about you know, again, the Persians, the Siamese, the Bengals, right? So the differences between the purebreds and the wildcats is all physical difference, such as hair color and fur patterns and facial structures. But when it comes to key species characteristics, such as a obligate carnivore diet and and their senses, like their their excellent sense of smell and things like that, they really found no differences in the genome. You know, today they cats share a ninety six percent DNA linkage with their wildcat ancestors. Wow. <laughs> You know, it's so complicated when you really think about all of the components. You know, you think, okay, 
you point at that, but you really have, you point at your animal and say, okay, they're domesticated. But uh, is that really the case? So it's almost right. if cats domesticated themselves, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Many, many other scientists and, and people refer to cats as being self-domesticated. You know, um, theories of how cats became domesticated is is constantly changing, too, because, you know, we we haven't really dived into that much study on this. I mean, we, we spend a whole lot more money and time looking at, at dogs and the evolutionary process of, of dogs. There seems to be a lot more funding for that. But as the scientists develop better tools, you know, to dive into that genetic evidence, then more information is going to be revealed. You know, they have found, um, they found several things. Like for once, one thing, they, they found that the frontal lobe of the house cat has shrank about 30% over its wildcat ancestor. And that doesn't mean it's more stupid. That frontal lobe is the part of the brain where fear is housed. So because that part of the brain that controls fear and reaction to, you know, scary situations shrank as that evolutionary process, then of course cats, you know, could um, could become less afraid of humans. And then they also found that um, other differences between the house and wildcats genes are things that like controlling the the neural pathways that would make the domestic cat more, you know, more willing to approach humans and interact with them again. So it's not just the the brain, but all those pathways that are going on and to seek rewards. Like I said, that reward seeking thing that they found was so important, you know, and, and the same genetic sequences are starting to be found in rabbits and horses and some other domesticated animals. Wow, you know, I, I can identify with the shrinking of the frontal lobe. I think that mine is shrinking, <laughs> did, too. So. Did you stay up uh, too late yeah, last night and yeah, shrink my, your frontal lobe a little? Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking that I shrunk it. So my evolutionary change is going to have a shrunken lobe. <laughs> <laughs> I love your lobe, honey. <laughs> yeah, thank you, my love. I love you, too. So are cats being bred for des- domestication? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 they're not. Um, not in the truest meaning of the word. Again, dogs, on the other hand, have been selectively bred for specific behavioral traits like herding and hunting or security. But, you know, cats have been bred mostly for cur- for color patterns, visual things, not behavior. You know, they say that, you know, domestication um, was really about people breeding for you know like cows and goats and things like that we breed them the tame ones that aren't as startled and shy of humans so that we can make them work for us like the dog works for people in its truest sense now today of course not people carry them around in their purses for god's sakes but you know the originally the relationship with dog and the breeding of dogs was bred for behavior for working behavior herding cattle, hunting, guarding the campfire, that kind of thing. So there's, you know, there's over 400 recognized breeds of dogs, and there's only about 40 cat breeds. Wow. You know, I just am so amazed at all of this information that you retain <laughs> to get here. So, uh, you know, it just keeps bringing up. When you have, you have a passion for something, I think that you... 
I think when you have such a such a passion for something, you relain, retain a lot of useless information. You know, you've heard me when we're sitting around dinner and somebody goes, you know, well, I don't know how to engage Molly in conversation. I'll ask her a cat question. And then 30 minutes later, I go, I'm sorry, you probably didn't really want all that related useless information. And people, thankfully, at least pretend like they're fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that brings up something else. So cats not being fully domesticated, in your opinion, would do just fine if you turned them out in the wild? Well, they have retained their hunting skills. You know, that's that's something that they do still share. You know, that's that's right up there and probably the 100% sharing of DNA with their wildcat ancestors. They have got their hunting skills. And they're much less dependent on humans for food. So, you know, with most dog breeds, if you release them in the wild, they wouldn't survive. But but with cats, you know, as you know, if you have a house cat and, and you let it outside, especially, you know, even if it's a cat run where mice can get in the cat run or birds get in your cat run, you know, you know that the cat still hunts even though you've fed it a full meal. They're very, very, very efficient hunters and they're wired to hunt. So if you turned a cat outside and it ended up, you know, wild, I don't recommend doing that, by the way, but if you did, it probably would survive, you know, as long as it wasn't too afraid of what's going on, as long as it didn't become prey itself, it's going to find some stuff to live on up there. So, so yeah, and it's also, you know, one of the reasons that a lot of the shelters in the major metropolitan areas are going to shelter neuter return protocol where all strays that are brought into the shelter, regardless of how cute and friendly they are, are spayed and neutered, ear tipped, and returned to the neighborhoods that they came from. And this is done for several reasons. One, if the cat is already friendly, then it belongs to someone and that person lets their cat in, you know, in and outside and they're missing it. And less than 2% of cats get returned to their owners through shelters. So it's better for us to put it back in the neighborhood and it will find its way home. And then the really feral ones, nobody has resources to tame a feral cat and you're probably not going to get it you know again fully tamed so it it makes a lot more sense if it's then it was finding plenty that it came from so so yes i think cats would do just fine you know most cats not all cats but most cats if, if they had to live on their own if all the people died one day and they were left to fend for themselves they'd do fine first of all they'd start by eating us and then <laughs> mm-hmm. but yes they would dogs not so much okay <laughs> so the bottom line sounds like cats are not domesticated or semi-domesticated I typically do not say either one of those things I say that cats are socialized not tamed socialize because they've learned to become social with us right um for food it's again it goes back to that symbiotic relationship they really don't need us emotionally and and physically but they like us they learn to like us well enough and and you know often they they absolutely adore us but um but they really have learned to become social with us you know, and, and in for, for instance, here, here's a, another science fact. So in the wild, cats don't meow to one another. They developed language along the way 
for us because they learned that meowing got our attention and and very likely more food, you know. So they like sitting around the campfire, they'd come up and then, you know, the people were like, wow, look, he came up. He's five feet away. He's eating the food. Nobody move. We don't want him to run off. Look how beautiful he is. And then the cat looks at him and goes, why are they acting weird? Let me try this and tries to mimic one of our sounds like, meow and they go wow did you hear that and toss another piece of food so then that cat goes back to his buddies and says hey guess what if you meow you get a second handout (laughs) but they've learned social behaviors that engage us into adoring them is really what's happened (laughs) that's incredible they're training us so what does domestication or lack thereof mean for a cat's behavior in the home Well, okay, it means a lot of things. So let's start with kind of what I just said, that it means you can train a cat very effectively with positive reinforcement, with rewarding it, with food, for things that it does that you want to see more of. You know, this is either classical conditioning or operant conditioning, you know, like we do with clicker training. So a cat is very, very adept at learning because it's driven by that reward-seeking behavior. They're very, very good at understanding what actions equal rewards. But unlike dogs, negative punishment doesn't work on them. So see, dogs are pack animals. They are wired to please you because they see you as the pack leader. And, And it's in their nature you know, for everybody in the house to have a social status and hierarchy, and they really want to please anybody that's higher up on the hierarchy, and they want to subordinate anyone who is lower than so they they remain in their status. But cats don't have any of that, right? Cats don't have a social hierarchy. They're really just in it for the rewards. Now, sometimes those rewards are fresh-saved turkey, Sometimes it's affection. Sometimes they go, God, I really like it when she scratches my chin and on the side of my face. And oh my gosh, that feels good. So sometimes, and sometimes it's, I love it when she pulls out that feather wand toy that I love so much. And so if I do this, you know, maybe I'll get to play with the wand toy more, whatever the reward is. You know, the more that I work in cat behavior and the more that I work in cat training, I realize that they really are training us in the end. I mean, we can train them to do certain things, but in their mind, you know, they they go, hey, I get a reward when I do this. So I've trained her really well. Watch this, Henry. I'm going to come over here and sit up and meow and watch me get all the treats, you know. And and you can better understand their litter box and scratching behaviors by studying, you know, why and how their wildcat ancestors behave the way that they do. If we simply provide for our house cats as if they were tiny wildcats, both them and us would be much happier. So you also use the term genetic remembering, and, you know, that sounds like something that we would get from Anthony Robbins, and genetic remembering, you know, because he teaches some of that genetics that remembering stuff. So cats mm-hmm. have that too, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. So when you talk about cats, how does that relate to domestication? That's a good question. And, and um, 
Another, you know, Anthony Robbins, I love Anthony Robbins. I studied him, you know, back, back in the day in the, in the 80s. And, and he has so many valuable tools. And he was teaching a lot of what we use in cats, like anchoring, you know, that's pretty much what we're doing with operant conditioning. So I love him. And I find, I find analogies in his material, you know, 30 years later, as I'm, as I'm working with cats, as I did back as I was learning Anthony Robbins for, for sales training. So, um, so genetic remembering, how does it relate to domestication? So since the process of domestication has to do with behaviors being inherited or learned from one generation to another, genetic remembering is part of that process. And I use that term when I'm talking about feral cats versus socialized cats. So for instance, when you ha- if you have a litter of kittens from a multi-generations of feral cats, they are often much more difficult to tame and they be- kind of become the shy, easily startled cats. Like our current foster, we have a, a beautiful foster cat named Dexter Dew and uh, he's from Felines and Friends, New Mexico and he's available for adoption. And he and his siblings were found with their mother, um, all feral. And um, I don't know the, the circumstances around the, the fostering of Dexter Dew. Um, all his, all his sibling, siblings, by the way, were Dew. So it was Dexter Dew and Dottie Dew. And, and, and again, I don't know what was behind that either, but it's cute. <laughs> and so Dexter acts kind of like a feral cat. He hides all day long. We have him in our in our closet, which is a giant space that I office out of, and we have I like big closets, so big big space. And he hides up on a cabinet under a dresser under clothes all day long. Now he lets me pet him. He enjoys that. He you know a little butt lift, and he'll actually get up and let me put both hands on him. You know he does not. He's not so fearful that he is, you know, attacking or hissing or biting or swatting or things like that. So, you know, obviously he was with someone that that helped him to understand that human touch is okay, but he doesn't seek it out and he does not come out during the day. We have a little cat cam, so he only comes out at night when everybody's in bed and he feels like it's safe, plays with all the toys, scratches up the scratching posts, you know, has a heyday at night but stays hidden all day long. And and that's not because of lack of exposure because he was found as a kitten. I'm not sure how old he was when, when they brought him in, but could have been after that critical uh, development period of three to seven weeks. But, you know, because of his lineage of feral, 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 feral generations back, there absolutely is something to that genetic remembering that ties into the domestication process I talked about earlier, which is, you know, the, the changing in the genetics of, of their brain and their neural pathways to be more or less afraid of humans. So I think it plays a, a big part in that. So if someone wants to know more about how a specific behavior is related in some way, like peeing outside the litter box or how this relates to wildcat behavior, they can email you, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it does almost all of my behavior consults when people tell me what's going on and I see what's happening in the environment. Most all of them I have to I start by educating and go, okay, well, look, in the wild, you know, cats pee outside in a, in a big 
open area, not in a cave or a hole. So uncover those litter boxes. So always, if you're having a behavior issue, it's usually tied back to how you are not satisfying that wild cat's needs. And so absolutely, if you're having a behavior issue and you want to know how that relates to the domestication or evolutionary process, please email me, molly at cattalkradio.com, and I would be happy to answer your questions. And I would like to add, if you also need more information on cat behaviors, please also check out our library of podcasts. There's lots of them and lots of information. And Molly is a wealth of information when it comes to that. You could just say, hey, Molly, like you say, hey, Google, can I figure this out? (laughs) Also, on catbehaviorsolutions.org, you'll find a blog under the resources tab with lots of great, great information there. Great. Yeah. And, and, you know, we are a nonprofit. So please you know, help us out. There's lots of ways you can help us out. You can follow us on Instagram. You know, that's, it's real important, of course, to have a large social media following. So find us on Instagram, Cat Behavior Solutions, and follow us on Instagram. Like us on Facebook, you know, or Cat Behavior Solutions, Cat Talk Radio on Facebook, and share it with other people. Don't hog that information. Other cat owners need to know this stuff too. And another way you can help us out is is I have a store on catbehaviorsolutions.org called the Behavior Boutique. And there's lots of things in there in that store that relate specifically to behavior, like food puzzles and wand toys and, and things like that. So check it out. And let me also say, if you have learned something, just anything from one of the podcasts, then this information is very important to you and someone else. So and your consi- cat. And your cat, yeah. So consider sending us a gratuity donation. We really appreciate that. Any amount helps us keep this show on the air and develop resources for cats, cat owners, to help keep the cats out of shelters. Because... Because shelter euthanasia is, is the, the number, number one, one cause thing. death in cats. Yeah. Okay, we got to work on that one, do we? We got to work on that one. But yes, I mean, we all know, and, and we've said it a lot, it's still yeah. a bad shelter place for a cat. Shelter euthanasia is the number one cause of death in cats. So you Keep share calm the information. And, and there you go. Okay, you do it this time. So until next time. Keep calm. And purr on. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. You can be a cat lifesaver by helping to keep us on the air. In the U.S., about 10 cats per hour are euthanized in shelters due to behavior issues. Through this educational radio show, behavior consultations, seminars, and articles, Cat Behavior Solutions intercepts cat behavior problems in the home, reducing the number of cats who are surrendered to shelters. Make a donation at catbehaviorsolutions.com. That's catbehaviorsolutions.com. Looking for products that address specific cat behavior issues? On our website, cattalkradio.com, you'll find things that will create enrichment in the environment for your cat. Toys that will reduce boredom, the world's best and safest nail clippers, and much more. All proceeds support our mission, reducing the number of cats surrendered to shelters. Stop by the site and pick up a few tips and tidbits for your cat today. 
Visit cattalkradio.com and look for The Behavior Shop. Thanks for tuning in to Cat Talk Radio. Please join your host, Molly DeVos, for another episode of the program on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, go make a connection with your feline friend.